Open your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Last Sunday morning, I preached to you about carnal Christianity, and I meant that in a personal sense. For each of you individually, to examine yourselves and to see if you are carnally minded or spiritually minded. Today we'll consider that as a congregation. Last Sunday evening, we considered the relationship of faith to feelings. And I preached that to you for you to consider it personally and individually. Today we want to consider that congregationally. I'm going to make a great deal of accusations today, and I'm not going to have time to deal with each one of them individually. I have before, or I will in the future. If you detect any defensiveness or Pauline boasting this morning or this evening, it's because I'm going to defend my stick-in-the-mud reputation when it comes to God's Word. We are in a war. Our Christian enemies, isn't that horrible? Our Christian enemies hate and resent our scriptural dogmatism. And many of them will soon join the world against us, as they already are. Fully one-third of the earth claims to be Christian, Yet it's obvious to a blind man, there's very little godliness or truth. Something is wrong in modern Christianity, and we want to identify it this day by God's help. I want to show you in John chapter 4 that not all those who claim to be worshiping God are worshiping God. In John chapter 4, our Lord Jesus Christ, that blessed Savior, the Son of God, who is said to be the epitome of love and who was love itself, and who is love, and who represented the God of love, had this to say to a woman who was bragging about her worship services. Jesus said in John 4.22, Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman of Samaria thought that the Samaritans had a decent religion. Jesus said, you don't know what you're worshiping. Salvation is of the Jews. But I want to tell you something. Jesus was speaking... during the very hours of the great Reformation. The Reformation that Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10 describes called the times of Reformation in which Jesus and John the Baptist and the apostles of our Lord reformed the Old Testament religion of the Jews into a New Testament religion that's very different, yet the same God. Very different in its outward forms. Jesus said, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. And brethren, that's what we want to be. The true worshipers of God who worship in spirit and in truth because God is a spirit. He is no longer worshipped in a mountain in Samaria, nor a temple in Samaria, nor is he worshipped in a mountain in Israel called Mount Zion, nor is he worshipped in a temple in Israel. He's worshipped wherever his saints gather together in his name. For he said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. He is no longer limited geographically to some place. We have a spiritual religion, and we have one that had better be based on truth. And those are the true worshippers of God, and God is seeking such because there are very few of them. I want to preach to you today and tonight, the Lord willing, I can finish it, a couple of sermons which are nothing but sessions of teaching on contemporary Christianity. And here's what I mean by those words. 
By contemporary, I mean the current, something that is current or modern or popular or progressive or present day or fashionable or up to date. By Christianity, I mean a religion that nominally claims Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the head of the church. So by contemporary Christianity, we see a constant modification of New Testament religion to attract the unregenerate and carnal Christians, please the flesh, and be acceptable to the world. That's what I mean by contemporary Christianity. A constant modification of New Testament religion in order to attract the unregenerate, to attract carnal Christians, to please the flesh, and to be acceptable to the world. And the world does not mind that there are two billion Christians in the world. Have you ever noticed that? They don't mind at all. What they cannot stand are Bible-preaching pulpits and little churches of saints like ours where we have an opinion on things. They don't like our opinions. In fact, they're going to legislate our opinions away with hate crime bills where you will not be able to have an opinion on any subject except to hate Bible believers and Bible preachers like ourselves. That will always be fair game because we invoke the name of God and the authority of God and the authority of His Word against them. And they cannot stand it. Now, a brother brought a little article that's on the back table that I hope you'll all read today. I may read it to you tonight. I hope that you'll read it. A city in our area, Anderson, one of the largest churches in that city, Boulevard Baptist Church, came together in committee and had a discussion. And in their discussion, they agreed that they would no longer require immersion in order to be a member of their Baptist church. Isn't that precious? My heart is so filled this morning to tell you that. And you should read their words about how they have now opened their church and they're a more receptive church to the community and they're more open. And they came to this conclusion after a vote in, in, of the church membership as to what they ought to do. Now, I don't read that we ought to vote about anything God has said. All I know is God said it. We should believe it, and that should settle it for us. Do you all believe that? That is an example brought today. I didn't pull it off the Internet from 20 years ago. 20 years ago, the First Baptist Church of Clemson did it. 19 years ago, the First Baptist Church of Greenwood did it, and they're both mentioned in that article. How can you call yourselves a Baptist and not require baptism? I guess it's the same way that the Christian scientists can call themselves Christian scientists and be neither Christian nor scientists. So I guess now Baptist doesn't mean anything anymore. But it's what I want to preach against this morning because I want to show you that God's standards don't change. For those of you listening by tape, you might want to go back and read the 33rd Psalm which we read as a congregation this morning as part of our worship, in which we saw that the devices of the heathen and the counsel of the heathen is brought to naught by God, and there is no effect from all their devices. Because I'm about to list to you some devices, and it's only the tip of the iceberg of what's going on in Christian churches this morning. Now, Brother Bruce stood up here a few weeks ago and told you about the coffee and donut session that he attended where he was able to listen to a rock band drinking coffee and eating donuts, and they called it a church service. Carnal contemporary Christianity, which is carnal Christianity on an organizational scale, is what I'm preaching against today. Not individually as last Sunday, but organizationally as a church, is the constant modification and adaptation and additions to the religion of the New Testament in order to keep the unregenerate happy in their assemblies, in order to keep carnal Christians happy in their assemblies, to please their flesh and their own lusts, 
and to be acceptable to the world so that it can be a popular place to go. That's what I mean by contemporary Christianity. It's identifiable by a legion. And I use the word legion intelligently. Legion was the name that the demons gave to themselves that were in the man of the Gadarenes. It is identifiable by a legion of inventions and additions made to the simplicity of the gospel. And I'm about to read you a long list, and your 21st century minds might get lost, but try to stay with me. I don't have time to stop, because we want to go on and look at what the Bible says about all of these things in general, without dealing with them individually. Here are what they've added to New Testament religion. Musical instruments. You cannot find them in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we are told to sing. There is plenty of information and proof from the Bible, both Testaments, that in the New Testament, you do not play, you sing. God is a spirit, and he is not worshipped by noises. He is worshipped in spirit and in truth. The melody flows from your heart that pleases the Lord, not from strings tied in a box that has white and black keys attached to the outside. Much more has been said on that, will be said, and you can get answers to your questions about that. I start with musical instruments. I go to Sunday schools. Sunday schools were invented a couple of hundred years ago by a noble, a noble man who wanted to teach the poor children of London how to read. Right. It's a noble thought. It's a good thought. But it's not a Bible thought. Right. If you want to teach the poor children how to read, do it on Saturday evening. Do it on Wednesday at noon. But don't mix it into the worship of God in his assemblies because it's not found in the Bible. And we're looked at like we are the crazy ones because we have an assembly this morning and we didn't have Sunday school. For those of you raised among the primitive Baptists, you've never seen a Sunday school. But for many of us, we always went to Sunday school. And the whole city of Greenville goes to Sunday school. But we don't have a Sunday school because it cannot be found in the Bible. It's an addition. The reason it is so blatantly wrong is they divide the congregation up into all of these little groups and they put men over them as, well, forget that, not anymore. They put women over them as teachers who are not called to be teachers. Right. Amen. We worship as a congregation, fathers, mothers, children all together, as they did in the New Testament. There is no breaking up of the congregation, and the teacher of the congregation is the pastor. Amen. Musical instruments, Sunday schools, mission boards, seminaries, special music, crosses, flags. Isn't it a shame that this morning behind me is not an American flag and a Christian flag? The religion of the New Testament does not know that there is a Christian flag. Jesus was not informed about the existence of a Christian flag. And the Apostle Paul, though he spent three years in Arabia, learning from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, was not told to put a Christian flag in the assembly of the saints. That is a pagan icon. As bad as any other pagan icon. I just wish that all of you, by the grace of God, would have enough wisdom to ask the question, where in the world did the stupid thing come from? And I hope that everyone listening to this by tape will ask the question, where in the world did such a stupid thing as a Christian flag originate? And why is it in every church in this city except ours? Why is it universal? Because they're all copycats. So that anyone who is different is made to look exceedingly different and unorthodox. But we shall be unorthodox in their opinion. The Apostle Paul once told Agrippa, after the way they call heresy, so worship I the Lord. Amen. And that's how we're going to worship. 
We don't have any flags this morning, and I'm sorry that we haven't had an attendance contest in order to award some of you with a pie baked by the noble women of our assembly. Neither do we have any flowers this morning, and we haven't had an offertory. We don't beg for money in this assembly. It's a commandment to give. We don't have offertories. We don't have an altar. And I'm sorry, but we don't have an athletic team or teams. We haven't had an Easter egg hunt on the church grounds in a while. A long while. And we don't have a drama team. And I'm sorry. I say that as a fool. We don't have any women preachers here. And we don't have any mission teams where children can go out and take a vacation in some other part of the world and build little huts for the people that live there. We don't believe in the casual church concept of coming in t-shirts, jeans, and sandals. We believe that we are worshiping God and to worship Him acceptably in the New Testament, we better come with reverence and godly fear. Hebrews chapter 12. We don't have haunted houses on the last day of October, and we haven't yet formed a rock band. We haven't had our children have a lock-in at the church, nor do we have Super Bowl parties on Sunday evenings and cancel the Sunday evening service in order to watch the Super Bowl on a giant screen TV. We haven't had a Christmas program. We don't have sleepovers. We haven't had a beach party for the young people. We don't have same-sex marriages. We don't have summer camps, athletic trips, laughing revivals, telethons, sharing meetings, Holy Land tours, sunrise services. We don't sing happy birthday and happy anniversary. I'm very sorry. We don't sing patriotic songs because the only land that we know and are totally loyal to is heaven above and Jerusalem, which is the mother of us all, not the United States of America. We don't sing my country tis of thee because our country tis not of him. The only country that tis of him is heaven itself and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I grew, we grew up singing those things. We don't have soup kitchens, and I'm sorry, boys, that we don't have a Boy Scout troop. We don't hold political rallies, and we forgot a steeple on our building. We don't have political demonstrations, and we don't have early services so that you can spend the day at the beach. We don't have celebrity testimonies so that your faith can stand in the glory of men. We don't have stained glass windows so that your spirit can be blessed by what you see. We don't have hired musicians so that your spirit can be blessed by what you hear. We forgot to have a coffee house on Saturday evening, and we don't believe that Jesus rocks. We don't have healing services, and we forgot to get a youth minister. We don't have ladies' Bible studies, and we forgot to ordain a lesbian pastor. We don't believe in self-esteem teaching, and we don't practice storytelling. You can read poems at home, but we won't do it here in this assembly. We don't send our young people off to rock rock concerts, and we don't have youth festivals like Woodstock for our young people. We don't have a music minister who thinks that he's got some special gift and calling of God to lead all the music, nor do we have interpretive dance in which you can watch people dance out the gospel up here. We don't speak in tongues. We don't have moral compromise without limits, and we don't have doctrinal changes without number as the rest of the churches in this county do. That's a short list, which is the tip of the iceberg, of a few inventions they've added to the religion of the New Testament. If you'd get on the Internet or read the Saturday edition of the paper that talked in the religious section, you'll find out about what they do in the name of religion in this conservative buckle of the Bible Belt called Greenville County, South Carolina. We oppose all of this, contemporary Christianity, with Bible Christianity. Amen. Which rejects all such inventions to maintain the truth and simplicity as commanded by our Lord. Amen. Listen to what the Lord Jesus Christ told his apostles when he left this earth in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus, our Lord, said this, and he is the head of our church. Amen. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. That includes us baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. 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 
Jesus told his apostles to teach his saints, and a saint is someone who believes and is baptized. And we know there's only one baptism because Ephesians chapter 4, for some reason, wanted to tell us that. And that one baptism is burial and resurrection in water. We do believe in immersion, and we believe that anything else is just a mirror getting wet. Jesus said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now, when Jesus told his apostles to teach them all things, that means they weren't to leave anything out. And when he says to teach them whatsoever I have commanded you, they were not to add anything that he hadn't commanded. Is that pretty plain? Jesus commands it, the apostles taught it, and that's the religion we ought to have. We do believe in traditional religion. The tradition of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. I read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The great apostle to the Gentiles with fear in his pen, writing these words. 2 Corinthians 11, fear. 3. 2 Corinthians 11, 3. He wrote, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Do you hear the fear of the Apostle Paul? I fear that Satan is at work in the same way he was at work in the Garden of Eden, attempting to deceive and beguile by his trickery saints away from the simplicity of the gospel. We're worshiping in simplicity this morning. We sang psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We prayed. We're preaching. You're hearing. We're going to fellowship together. Next Sunday evening, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. We've just run the gamut of New Testament worship. It's rather simple. But notice the fear here. And I fear. I fear. I want all of you established in this. Though most of you be established in it, I have Peter to defend me that though you be established in something, there is still necessary cause to remind you of it, that your minds will be steadfast in where we stand, that no matter who you meet or what you read, you will not be moved away from the simplicity of the gospel. In 1 Timothy 3.15, the Apostle Paul told Timothy, another minister, that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. That's what we intend for this church to be, We want to uphold and defend the truth of the living God, not all the devices of the heathen that they're bringing into his worship. And in Jude chapter 1 and verse 3, which it's only got one chapter, I read there that we are to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints, not twice delivered or not being delivered new every week as they come up with something fresh to keep the unregenerate young people happy. Once delivered. Right. His word is forever settled in heaven. The counsel of the Lord, as we read this morning in Psalm 33, standeth to all generations. It hasn't changed. We need to make sure that we are worshiping him according to his word. Brethren, we could easily be in, and I believe that we are, but we're not going to hold you responsible for following that faith unless you choose to in this matter, that we're in the last, the little season of Satan's loosing from the bottomless pit. Our Lord Jesus Christ, and we sang it in a hymn this morning, when he died on the cross of Calvary and came into this world, and then rose to heaven and sat down on his heavenly throne at the right hand of God Almighty, Satan was bound from his activity that he'd been engaged in for 4,000 years of deceiving the nations. He was not bound in his individual activity of walking about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. However, he was bound in his ability to deceive all nations. That's why Jesus Christ told his apostles that upon this rock, that is the testimony that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it because Jesus was opening those gates wide for the gospel to go into all nations. And it did. Prior to that, all the nations of the earth 
lived in gross darkness and abject superstition and ignorance and gross perversity of all morals. But the Lord bound Satan. He saw him cast down from heaven in John chapter 12 and by his victory on the cross, he defeated him. And so he's bound now in the earth without escape. However, in Revelation chapter 20, we're told at the end of that period of time in which the Lord Jesus Christ will reign over his church and just before he comes to take us to himself and to destroy this world, he will loose Satan from being bound that he could no longer deceive the nations. He will be loosed from that restriction and he will immediately go into all the earth to gather together the nations again against the people of God. Now, don't you read any comic books or prophetic manuals describing some great military army advancing on the Middle East. That whole thing is to be spiritually understood because the, 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 the book of Revelation was given to us in signs and figures of a spiritual conflict when Satan would gather together the rest of the humanity against the saints of the Most High God and try to destroy us. And there is a concerted effort against Bible-preaching, Bible-believing, holy-living saints. Even in the name of Christianity. And you know, we're warned of that as far back as the book of Isaiah. Way back in the book of Isaiah, we read where someday they'll think that they're pleasing God by killing you. Satan is not so stupid as to attempt our seduction by blatant paganism or witchcraft. He is subtle. Didn't you read 2 Corinthians 11 with me? He beguiles people. He doesn't confront them with blatant witchcraft or paganism. He beguiles them by giving it the nominal name of Christianity, but bringing in all sorts of human devices so that the worship of those people is no longer pleasing to the Lord. He cannot lay anything to the charge of God's elect. He cannot take their names out of the book of life. He knows they're redeemed, but his hatred of God is so great. If he can disrupt and distract and defer and move their worship away from the true form of worship, then he knows that the God who is seeking true worshipers will not have any, and he's defeated God in the way that he can. Do you follow that? Because it says the Father seeketh such to worship him. And they're almost extinct. True worshipers that only want to worship in spirit and in truth without regard for anyone except the word of God are very few. And so Satan is winning in this battle. Therefore, if you look at all that's happening in the world and the gathering together of them against any absolute moral position, you have to be tempted at least to believe that Satan's been loosed for his little season. I want you to come to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. You say we've been to 2 Timothy chapter 3 several times since you became our pastor again. And I'd have to say, I think it's worth our time to be warned here. This is the prophecy I want you most concerned with. Are you guilty of the prophecies of the first three verses? First four, first five. The apostle said, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. I've said it before. I'm going to have to say it again, and I will say it again for a long time to come if the Lord keeps me here. These are true perilous times. God does not care if you're starving on a relative basis. Doesn't care if there's an economic collapse on a relative basis. That's really unimportant. If there's a war, that doesn't really matter. If there's a pestilence or an AIDS epidemic that is incredible and it wipes out 90% of the population, that is, we've never been warned about that in the Bible. Right. What we've been warned about is this. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, Truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures 
more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. Brethren, these verses are describing a brand of Christianity that will arise in the earth. This is not worldliness of the heathen. This is a brand of Christianity. Do you understand the significance of this prophecy? Paul is telling Timothy, a minister, from such turn away, because there are going to be men, teachers, as the next verses are going to tell us, teachers that will arise, that will allow these things as part of their religion. They'll be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. They'll have a form of godliness or religion, but there'll be no authority in it. And the authority is, thus saith the Lord. They won't have it. It's a Christianity that we are to turn away from, and it is contemporary Christianity. And if there's ever been a generation that fulfills these first five verses more than our own, what was it? What generation was it? Our generation fits these first five verses to a T. And so we're warned by the apostle, and so I warn you. In verse 6 it says, For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Does that describe our generation? Are we living in the information explosion? There was an industrial revolution that changed the world. There was a service industry that developed that changed the way we live. But brethren, we're living in the middle of an information explosion. Ever learning, more information is at your fingertips this year, probably ten times than it was last year. But are we getting closer to the truth? Oh, no. Ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. The apostle says, Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. Paul isn't very nice, is he? I'm still nicer than Paul. Reprobate concerning the faith. I'm working on it, though. If I keep studying for sermons like this one, I'll get there. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. Remember, Pharaoh's Pharaoh's magicians were able to cast their rods down, and they became serpents. Satan does have power. However, Moses and Aaron cast down their rod, and it became a serpent, and it swallowed all of their rods. Now, does that say something to you about their religion compared to the religion of Moses? Yes, the religion of God is greater. And eventually, those magicians had to turn to Pharaoh and say, These men are the servants of the Most High God, for we have just witnessed the finger of God in this room. Their folly was manifest to all men that they'd run out of power. And the true power was standing there, brethren. And I want to tell you something. Do you know what this verse promises me? That if we'll maintain the truth and we'll stick to it and hold to it, the folly of all that's going on outside there will also be made manifest. And it should be if you've got eyes that can see. One-third of the world is Christian. Where's the godliness and the truth that should accompany Christianity? But Paul said in verse 10, Thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. But out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Perilous times are when there's a brand of Christianity that's in love with pleasure more than in love with God. It's Christianity in love with pleasure. The world has always been in love with pleasure. But there was something coming in which Christianity would be in love with pleasure. It would be a brand of Christianity that had the form of religion without the authority of a sovereign Christ. And without, thus saith the Lord, 
We don't want to move without thus saith the Lord. Amen. We don't want to do anything in our lives privately or publicly without thus saith the Lord. Or you're being presumptuous and you're tempting the Lord. What happened to some men who tried some strange fire sometime? Amen. The Lord burned them up. He showed his own strange fire. And when I say strange, I use it in the sense of the prophet Isaiah, who called it the strange work of the Lord when he judges men like that. Right. These will be times filled with much learning but little truth. These are times filled with examples of sensational extremes, but there won't be godly fruit. The folly of this contemporary Christianity is shown by its lack of fruit. These are times when evil men are going to wax worse and worse. And I hope you notice that 12th verse. For those that live godly in Christ Jesus, they shall suffer persecution. If we are not being persecuted as a church or privately, then we are not living as godly as we can. Because those that live godly shall suffer persecution. And if you let your faith be known, you'll suffer for it because our faith is different than their feelings. Right. Deception is going to increase. Evil men... Now remember, we are talking about Christianity. Evil men aren't going to get worse than Cain in the world. They've always been as bad as they can be. There is no goodness in them at all. This is Christianity. But evil men and seducers, seducing Christian teachers, shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Deception is going to increase so much that it will control both the teachers and their hearers. And remember, deception is something that you think you have the truth when in fact you have a lie. It's a horrible thing. You, you're, you're just sure of yourself that what you're doing is good, godly, and wonderful. But in fact, you're practicing a lie. The Apostle Paul was deceived about the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I verily thought within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. He thought he ought to persecute Jesus Christ because he thought Jesus Christ was an imposter and a blasphemer. But the Lord opened his eyes and he turned to be the greatest apostle of that Lord Jesus Christ. This is not paganism or witchcraft. In 2 Timothy 3.13, this is Christianity getting worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. May the Lord bless you to understand that. Amen. Now come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's Paul again. We read this third verse once, but I want to start at verse 2 now. The Apostle Paul said, I'm jealous over you with godly jealousy. Only righteous saints can understand those words. Was Paul jealous that Apollos was preaching to them? Nope. Was Paul jealous that Peter was there preaching? Nope. Did Paul care that Apollos had a greater gift of eloquence than he did? Nope. No. Paul was jealous for their souls that they would be the true worshipers that God was seeking that would worship him in spirit and in truth. Amen. I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And brethren, that is what we want to be. Amen. That is what we want to be as a church, a chaste virgin of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not spoiled, not tainted. Listen, maintaining our virginity and not even getting close with anything else that falls short of losing virginity. We want to be a chaste virgin. Notice he didn't even leave the word virgin alone. He had to modify it with that adjective chaste. Virgin. I love it. Amen. That's what we want to be for the Lord Jesus Christ. But I fear, and here's the enemy, lest by any means as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. If you move away from the simplicity that is in Jesus, then you have been corrupted. Let's use Bible words. It's a corruption of Christianity. Maybe we should call it corrupt Christianity instead of contemporary. But you know what I mean, and you're going to run into those words, contemporary Christianity, so I want you to have a Bible opinion of them. Verse 4, For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, 
which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. A teacher could come, or plural teachers might come. Paul was afraid that these Corinthians would listen to these other teachers. These are not witches or warlocks. Right. These are Christian teachers coming, but they're presenting a different Jesus. They're using the name of our Jesus, but it's a different Jesus. They come preaching the gospel, but it's another gospel. And when they have an assembly, there is a spirit there, but it is not the spirit of God. Right. What a warning. What a warning. And I'm giving it to you now, and I hope you fear and tremble before this passage. This is the word of God to us. In this day, there is a Christianity that has another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. And I don't want us to ever bear with them. From such, we are to turn away. Amen. And he goes on down and explains that, verse 6, though he was rude in speech, yet the apostle Paul was not rude in knowledge. He had taught them all they needed to know. And he comes down to verse 13 and he said that these teachers that are going to come are false apostles. We can read in Revelation chapter 2 that the church at Ephesus had tried them, which said they were apostles and were not, and had found them to be liars. There were men going around claiming to be the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ in that day. And guess what? We've got them today. Don't you know that there are 12 apostles sitting in Salt Lake City? And that's just one example. The Mormon church. Such are false apostles, deceitful workers. Notice they will deceive you. They are the fulfillment of 2 Timothy 3.13, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Though they are not his apostles, they will look like his apostles. And how will they do that? And no marvel. Don't marvel at that, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Thank you, God. Because they want to be imposters and destroy the true gospel and Jesus and spirit of the New Testament. It's not a marvel. And if you, were, if you understood and were with me in reading the 13th verse, you should have been marveling that men would look like the apostles of Christ. But Paul explains to us that it will be by satanic motivation and satanic authority and satanic power and satanic wisdom that they will appear as ministers of righteousness. So that when you hear them, it sounds like a message of righteousness. When you see them, it looks like an assembly of saints. It looks like the preaching of the gospel. It looks like a man who's doing a great work for God like the apostles did. But it's Satan taking saints away from the true gospel and the true worship of God to a false religion with a false Jesus, a false message, and a false spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. We're not even to bear with them. Listen, the Apostle Paul was totally intolerant. In Galatians chapter 1, he said, If any man, if an angel, preaches any other gospel unto you than that which I have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That same Apostle in the next chapter said, when some teachers came from Jerusalem that were teaching some loyalty to the law of Moses in order to be saved and justified along with Jesus Christ's sacrifice. It said he wasn't in subjection to them, no, not for an hour. We do not bear with them. We do not give them any place. We cut them off and we turn away from them. That's the word of the Lord, and that's the Apostle Paul. Even at Corinth, there were false teachers motivated by Satan appearing to be good. Is it in the context of chapter 3? It is indeed. I'll show you tonight just how much all these verses flow together perfectly. 2 Timothy 4, 3, For the time will come. That's future tense. That means this is a prophecy. And he's already told you that the perilous times of the last days. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, 
That isn't very nice. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. There was a time coming when men would no longer endure sound doctrine, which is sound, strong Bible teaching. Doctrine is a word that we're not used to using ourselves, but it simply means teaching or instruction, precepts or a lesson of that which is considered to be right in a particular field of knowledge. How about if we just call it teaching and instruction? And since it's Bible teaching and instruction, they will not endure sound doctrine. They will not endure strong Bible preaching. But they want to hear something because they've got to have their form of godliness. So they heap to themselves teachers. I find that very interesting. How many uh, ministers does the average church have today? A whole heap of them. A whole heap of them. They heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They've got the minister of music. They got the minister of youth. They got the minister for the young marrieds. They got the minister for the old marrieds. They got the minister at the retirement home. They've got all sorts of ministers. And they've turned their ears to fables. They don't want to hear the truth anymore. They want to hear fables. Their own lusts. The lust of the eyes, they better look good. The lust of the flesh, they better make me happy. The pride of life, they better be impressive and they better have celebrity status so that I can bring visitors and they'll be excited to come also. Sorry, brethren, you don't get any of it. Isn't that pitiful? You just get the trying of your faith every Sunday. Amen. Their own lusts would create a multitude of entertainers to scratch their fleshly ears. Truth no longer matters. Fables and lies are fine with us. Just make us happy. Verse 4. They shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Brethren, God seeks those to worship Him that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And when men turn away from it, they are no longer pleasing the Father because He is seeking true worshipers. And so this contemporary Christianity, though it uses the name of Jesus, and though it has a spirit attached with its assemblies, and though it calls its message the gospel, it is not pleasing to God. And the apostle would say we should not bear with those people and we should turn away from them. And do you know what it tells me to do? Preach the Word. And I love a job description that is so simple and powerful when I get to preach God's Holy Word. Amen. Now, what's the problem? We now have a generation of Christians living with hardly any concept of truth and error. All they have is the name and feelings. We have a generation of Christians exalting feelings over their faith as the criterion for doctrine in the church, and practice in their private lives. We have a generation of Christians that exalts expediency and pragmatism over truth for achieving some man-made goal. The end justifies the means. No problem for a contemporary Christian. Listen, if we've got to take food to the starving masses of Biafra, and feed those little bloated children. Follow me. And feed those little bloated children and extract from them the name Jesus from their lips. Then we can say that we've done God's will and fulfilled the Great Commission. I pity starving children. But I also know that it's not part of New Testament religion to feed them with the goal of extracting a testimony from them in order to get that meal and call it a salvation experience. But they do it all the time. We have a generation of Christians that follows the vague notions of a spirit, even when it's in opposition to the Scripture. We have a generation of Christians that foam about the love of Jesus with little regard for doctrinal integrity or holiness. It's another Jesus, and they foam about him. Oh, the love of Jesus. Christians, we have a generation of Christians that are struggling with controversies as hilarious as when you invite Jesus into your heart in order to be regenerated and go to heaven when you die, 
Do you have to accept him as Savior, or do you also have to accept him as Lord? Now, I want to tell you something. Jesus Christ, the Savior, is the Lord. Amen. But they have a, there's a raging controversy in Christian circles. In order to get a person saved with a sentence, do you have to say Jesus is Lord, or can you just say Jesus as Savior? It is a big-time controversy, and if you don't know about it, it's because you're not reading in the right places, and I don't blame you. Amen. We have a generation of Christians that revolts against strong Bible preaching and, con- and condemnation of sin as arrogant and negative. They call it arrogance. What would they have called Jesus? What would they have called Paul? The same things those enemies of theirs did in the New Testament. Right. We have a generation of Christians that want to assemble for the purpose of sharing rather than hearing authority. We have a generation of Christians that measures the will of God by their feelings and some vague spirit and their circumstances. That's how they measure the will of God. We have a generation of Christians so sweet and happy and gracious, yet they don't have a clue as to their scriptural authority for anything they do. And it's a shame when you meet one of them. It's one of the most formidable formidable foes you will meet. Is someone who is sweet, kind, gracious, loving, faithful, gentle, neighborly, just a charming person. And no matter what you ask them, they don't have a clue for biblical authority for anything they do. And do you know who I hate in that little equation? The deceiving, seducing teachers that stole that person's soul away from the simplicity that's in Christ. Because in some of them, you can see the work of God. What do these Christians say? I'm going to give you some statements that you're going to hear, or maybe you have heard. I don't need doctrine. I have the Spirit. And I question your spirit. I've heard that in a Bible study. One of the first Bible studies I went to. I don't need doctrine. I have the Spirit. Well, bless your heart. The Holy Spirit that I read about in the Word of God is the one that inspired all this doctrine. I can't show you Bible verses, but I feel the Lord is leading me. Precious. How do you argue with that? I can't show you any Bible verses, but I just feel the Lord's leading me to do this. You know why I'm teaching you on this? It's very hard to reason with that. Because they've just taken away any authority except their little feelings. Do you know how the Lord leads you? Right here. In all matters of importance, He leads you this way. Listen, if he leads you to parking, parking spot number two in a giant parking lot instead of number four, we'll let you hold that as the Lord's leading. But if it's anything in the worship of God, anything dealing with your moral integrity and holiness, it better be based on the Word of God. If he's led you to buy a Buick instead of a Chevy, we'll allow that. But we're not going to allow any statements like that in why we don't serve distilled water and bananas for the Lord's Supper. There's a reason why we do things, and it's because the Bible said so. You'll hear these Christians say, you can feel the Spirit there. You can just feel the presence of Jesus. Well, I've read my Bible quite a few times, and I've read the New Testament many times. But I can't find ever where we were told to try to find the presence of Jesus by the feeling there. But what I can find is that there's a whole, there's a whole new brand of Christianity that is based on feelings and fables and the lusts of their flesh with another Jesus. And I know that he can be, and I, and, and I shouldn't marvel that they have such feelings and can feel the presence of Jesus because I think they do feel the presence of a Jesus. But it's the wrong Jesus and it's a different spirit that's giving them that feeling. You will hear these Christians say, I just don't feel that God is like that. I think He is more accepting of us. How do you argue with that? They've left the Word of God and turned to fables. Have you ever, any of you ever uh, heard any of these? Don't give me doctrine. Don't preach at me. Just give me Jesus. 
They want another Jesus because do you know what Jesus would do if he were there? He'd preach at them. Amen. What do you think he's going to do? Just hold their hand? Read the Bible. He preaches. He opened his mouth and he taught them. And when he was done, the people are just astonished. And they marveled at him because he spake with authority like no man they had ever heard before. Right. He was authoritative. He was condemning. Ever read Matthew chapter 23? That's what he would do if he appeared in the year 2000 in the United States of America. Amen. I know it must be right because I have never felt this way before. I could give you some... Anyway, we can lead people like that to feelings of just about anything and I hope they wouldn't say the same thing but to say I know it must be right because I've never felt this way before... Doctrine's going to divide the body of Christ. Jesus told us to love. I don't know what they mean by the body of Christ, neither do they because they can't find it in the Word of God in the way that they're using it. But I'll tell you one thing that they are right about. Doctrine does divide, and the Lord intended it to divide. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, I didn't come to bring peace on this earth. I came to divide. And I came to divide especially in families to really test the character of my saints to see if they would give up the most beloved relationships in their life for me. That's Matthew chapter 10. Totally contrary to this world which is intent on uniting us all. But I don't want to change them. I just want to give them Jesus. You'll see someone in some work that they call evangelism or they'll call it their ministry. And you'll ask them, aren't you going to require repentance? And they'll say, but I don't want to change them. I just want to give them Jesus. It's, brethren, I'm not trying to entertain you right now. I want to give you a foundation because this is happening all around us. And if you get out and talk at all, what I'm saying is not a caricature of them. It is an honest representation of them. I don't know about all that theological stuff. I just know I love Jesus. But if it gets kids off the streets to hear about Jesus, isn't it right? Where does all this come from? I'm about to end, but I just want to start what we'll look at tonight. This contemporary Christianity flows from a number of heresies. And we can be delivered from ever being moved toward that. And we can have the cure for them, if they ever want to listen, by going to the root heresies that cause all this. And I'm going to have quite a string tonight, and I think you'll find them very informative as the Word of God denies them all. Let me just give you one or two before we close for this morning. First of all, they're numbers-driven. This is a heresy to be numbers-driven. If you're numbers-driven, that means that you are generating confidence statistically and psychologically by large numbers. There There is a law called the law of large numbers. And it's true statistically, and it's also true psychologically. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, which I have preached to you before, the Apostle Paul warned about false teachers that would suppose that gain is godliness, and he said from such teachers to withdraw thyself. Remember, then he goes on to say, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That's what we believe. We believe that if we could have godliness with contentment, that's great gain, and that is our Lord's rule for success in this world. They suppose that gain is godliness. And so they measure themselves statistically by large numbers. Since we only have 90 or 100 in this assembly, and they have 1,000 or 2,000 in their assembly, then obviously, by the law of large numbers, they must be right. Aren't we glad that Noah and the eight members of his family didn't believe in the law of large numbers? Amen. Aren't we glad that Jesus and the 120 that gathered in the upper room in Acts chapter 2 did not, Acts chapter 1 did not follow the law of large numbers? Amen. Paul warned about it right there in 1 Timothy chapter 6, supposing that gain is godliness. I also want to read to you a verse from Moses. It's Exodus chapter 23. And it is so precious about this subject of being numbers driven. 
these people will justify their contemporary Christianity because it's drawing crowds. The Bible has the opposite to say. If you're getting a crowd, you must be preaching a lie. Jesus said, whatsoever is highly esteemed among men is an abomination with God. If you're a friend of the world, you're the enemy of God. If the world's flocking to your shindig, you're wrong. Because they don't flock to the truth and they never did. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 2, look at this. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil, neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment. Does that declining after many sound like gross, widespread backsliding to decline? This is widespread backsliding, and the warning is don't follow the law of large numbers. Don't go with the numbers. Go with the truth. The, the Father is seeking such that worship Him that is not that are not influenced by crowds or numbers. They're only go, they're only looking for thus saith the Lord. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. God commanded long ago for us to resist crowds or a majority backsliding toward error. Brethren, Hitler knew very well that if you put one million people in one place and line them all up neatly, all dressed well, and you play nationalistic and patriotic and militaristic music at them for an hour or two, and you get them all to click their heels and raise their hand together in one great mass movement, and then you bring a fiery orator before them, you can get a people like that to do anything that men in their ordinary minds would not do. All they are doing is using the same psychology at these large meetings that take place all over this country. It is impossible for you to sit in a coliseum and sing Amazing Grace with 15,000 voices and not have goosebumps on your body. It's the law of large numbers. And it doesn't mean a thing to God. In fact, he warns us against it. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Hitler knew it so well that large crowds create a psychological spirit that is very powerful. Very powerful. I have a book at home that anyone can borrow that wants to read it, entitled, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. When you get with a crowd that's doing one thing, it is very difficult to go counter to that crowd. When you're with a large crowd that is doing something similar to what you want to be doing, like singing Amazing Grace, and you hear the throaty singing of 15,000 people together, it's very difficult to resist to resist that ecumenical spirit that is in there. And brethren, there is a spirit there that is trying to unite everyone from Jehovah's Witnesses to Mormons to Catholics to Baptists into one body. Amen. One heretical body that no longer pleases God the Father because they're no longer worshiping in spirit and in truth. These promise keepers meetings are that way. They'll even have communion with 15,000 men. Of course you're going to come away with a blessing. Don't you understand that? Of course you're going to come away and tell us how blessed you were. I'd be blessed if I was there. That's why I don't go. You can't help it. It's the way we're made. We're sheep. And we prefer to be in a great big giant flock instead of out by ourselves trusting our shepherd. Bill Gothard. Same thing. From Jehovah's Witnesses to Baptists. Oh, look at all these people here. They sing together and they're all here because they want to know the truth and have godly families. Huh, huh? Right. That's why they're all there. Jesus would say, whatsoever is highly esteemed is an abomination. He doesn't get those large crowds by preaching truth. He gets those large crowds by preaching compromise. He doesn't dare ever mention anything that this says. Oh, you say, but he does quote the Bible. Of course he does. He takes his little animal stories from the book of Proverbs. Why doesn't he get up and preach on baptism? Why doesn't he rip away on the doctrine of baptism? Because his crowd would drop from 15,000 to 1,500. Then why doesn't he get up and, rich on the, and, and, 
and blast away on the doctrine of election because then his crowd would drop from 1,500 to fifteen. But then he could get up and take up the sonship of our Lord Jesus Christ, and from 15, he could empty the building and go home and save himself the rent of that Colosseum. (laughs) Christian concerts. If you go to a Christian rock concert and you come back and you tell me, but I got a blessing there, do you know what? I will believe you. I will believe you, but I'm putting quotation marks around that blessing. It's the blessing of the large crowd. It's a fact, and God knew it. Did you see the verse I showed you? He knows the deceptive nature of that thing. Statistically, it's deceptive because they say, how could you be right? There's so few people that believe it. We must be right because look at how many believe it. Well, if that's true, then the Jehovah's Witnesses are right because they're the fastest-growing denomination in the world. We don't believe that. The Lord Jesus Christ was a total loser if you're going to measure him by the numerical success he had. All the crusades and youth festivals. I hear about these youth festivals all the time. You know, it's like Woodstock. They'll get 200,000 young people together in a field all singing with rock bands pumping at them for three or four hours. I'd get a blessing too. My body likes the same beat theirs does. Theirs, their bodies do. But they come back and they say, I got such a blessing from the Lord. Tears will be streaming down their face. I just love Jesus. I just love Jesus. But you lay the word of God on them and it just goes right over their head. They don't care about worshiping God in spirit and in truth. It's the the deception of a numbers-driven religion. It's contemporary Christianity. And brethren, denominational gatherings, I don't care if it's the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches, or if it's the Southern Baptist Convention, or it's the Primitive Baptists in some giant meeting, whenever you get a large group of people together, there is a feeling generated by all the bodies present and the large, the law of large numbers so that you come away with a feeling that isn't necessarily based on the Bible. And we call it a blessing, but it's not a blessing from God. A blessing from God can only be measured one way, and it's not by feelings, and it's not by who is there, and it's not by how many. It's by thus saith the Lord. I'm a stick in the mud. I know that. But our church is going to be a stick in the mud. It's the way the world looks at it, but what we're going to be is a chaste virgin to Christ. Very chaste. We're not going to chase the crowd. These public demonstrations, someone goes to oppose abortion or to, or to rally behind some political candidate or multi-church revivals. When you get that larger audience together, of course you're going to feel a blessing. But will you feel a blessing when it's a real small crowd, people you know, where familiarity breeds contempt, and all you hear is the Bible? Now that's the test of our Christianity, because that's the test of the New Testament. Do you still love sound doctrine? Amen. Brethren, it's impossible to attend a large assembly like that and not believe that you found the Spirit there. You did find a Spirit there. But don't try to deceive us by telling us you found the Spirit. The Spirit's known wherever this Word is taught, preached, practiced, and lived out. Amen. Tonight we'll look at more of the sources of this contemporary Christianity. It's raging around us. They hate us because we stand for absolute authority of the Word of God and condemn any variation from it. And there'll be a day, if they have their way, where they'll get to get rid of us. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen. Amen.